This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, We are recording this episode precisely one week before Election Day uh, 2020, and uh, we are very fortunate to have with us Paul Steckler. Paul is a frequent guest on our podcast, and uh, he is going to talk to us today about media coverage of this election and prior elections and how the history of media coverage uh, has changed and how the past media coverage of elections has influenced uh, the particular coverage of this current election. What can we learn from that, and uh, how can we do better going forward? Paul is, as many of you know, uh, the Wolfordinius Chair in Entertainment Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, He's nationally recognized as a documentary filmmaker with critical, critical work done on a number of major characters and events in American history. Um, His award-winning documentaries include George Wallace, Setting the World on Fire, Last Man Standing, Politics, Texas Style, Vote for Me, Politics in in America, and a four-hour PBS special, which is really extraordinary, on grassroots electoral politics. Uh, He also did two segments of Eyes on the Prize, uh, the series on the really landmark series on the history of civil rights. He's won uh, numerous Peabody Awards, journalism awards of different kinds, three National Emmy Awards. Uh, The list goes on and on. Paul, thank you for joining us this morning. I'm happy to be here. Before we get started and on our discussion of uh, media coverage of this election and prior elections, we have, of course, uh, Zachary Suri's uh, scene-setting poem. What is the title of your poem today, Zachary? Water Balloons. All right, let's uh, hear about Water Balloons. I'm a little nervous, but let's hear it. There are people who seem to think it is fun to twiddle with lives as they sit in the sun. The pixels go whoosh and the world is agog as the truth disappears in a thickening fog. There are people who seem to find it quite lovely to dream up some lies as they sip sip at their bubbly. The bubbles go up and the truth never comes, or so it seems with their cigars and rums. And the letters go floating in invisible webs to the brain-dead buffoons of democracy's ebb. They mix up in there with Cheetos and cola and float right down to the president's lawyer. But words have meaning even when dead and return to the living from your brimstone bed. And words have power that you cannot erase. Soon enough, you must look the truth in the face. And maybe the lines outside YMCA's are still lines of people bearing lies of today. And maybe the truth can't yet move the throng. But the words will awake from this Wild West cake and take right from the hands of the wrong. And boy, the buffoons will burst like water balloons. That's quite a poem, Zachary, and I love the uh, sarcasm of it. What, what is your poem about? My poem is really about the absurdity and the sort of darkness of living in a time like ours where words seem meaningless, but also about how in the end the truth will come out and, and must come out. So, Paul, I think that's a perfect spot to start our discussion. Have we ever seen an election with so much lying as we've seen in, in this election? Well, um, you know, we, we live in an age of social media so that uh, there's more of everything. And because it's unregulated completely, 
you have uh, much more line because there's much more stuff. I mean, you know, besides the fact that our political system is becoming more and more dysfunctional and the president of the United States, you know, tends to stretch the truth, you know, pretty much every day. So I guess not. And, and, and a, a topic that, that I know a number of uh, journalists and scholars have been talking a lot about, um, is there a tradition, uh, and, and if so, how has it developed, of uh, members of the, the media, including yourself, uh, correcting politicians, as we've seen in certain cases, Leslie Stahl in, in her uh, interview with Trump on 60 Minutes, an interview he left because he didn't like the fact she was correcting him. Is, is there a tradition of, of journalists doing that? Um, not that I know of. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I don't think I've ever, um, lived at a time when people in the newspapers are writing articles that essentially said the president said this and he was lying, um, you know, or people led, um, news stories saying that the president or people around him, uh, said this, this falsehood. Um, you know, uh, this particular president, um, um, lies a lot. You know, if you look at the Washington post and the sheer number and then thousands and thousands of uh, misstatements. Uh, I'm not sure you can go back to any president of the United States who, um, uh, who talks like this. Now, are there political figures in the past that have um, stretched the truth? I guess so. Uh, maybe not uh, to the point of having this kind of a, a national pulpit. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't, I, you know, in terms of my, my, my memory, I don't remember any, uh, uh, any presidency where you had the press doing this kind of thing. I mean, there was always been press that, uh, you know, were, you know, tended to be, you know, uh, partisanly opposed to someone. Um, uh, and then we had a much more partisan press in the past. Remember that the, um, the whole idea of nonpartisan press is a fairly new concept in the United States. And to a certain extent, social media, um, and just the, the times have moved us back towards, um, more ideologically, um, oriented press, if you take a look, especially at cable news. So, but this seems like a pretty um, um, unprecedented time with an unprecedented presidency. Well, one of the things, Paul, that, that your work has been, uh, your documentary work has been so powerful in showing are, are the different ways people make decisions at the local level on, on how to vote and the role of rumors and images. Uh, do, do you feel that, that that has changed also in a social media environment or is it just more of the same? I think it's changed quite a bit because, you know, as we begin to sort ourselves into our own bubbles, people sort themselves into their own news bubbles or to their own social media bu bubbles so that um, if you hear the same misinformation over and over and over again, you... Um, you begin to accept that there was a, um, I'm trying to remember where I saw this. I think it might've been on cable uh, on maybe CNN yesterday where they were talking about how the president has been taking full credit for um, VA choice and which was actually passed under president Obama uh, and was spearheaded in the Senate by John McCain. I think there was follow-up legislation. Then, and during the Trump administration, they just updated it, but he's been, you know, essentially misstating or lying the fact that it was purely his legislation and um, talking about it over and over and that uh, during the Republican convention this year, a number of speakers, when they were having their speeches vetted, wanted to include or did include this fact that the Trump administration had uh, been essentially solely responsible for VA choice. And uh, what the cable analyst was talking about was that they all believed it and they believed it because 
the president had been saying it over and over and over again. So that um, at a certain point, if you lie and lie and lie and lie, and that's all that a certain part of the population is hearing, then the lie becomes uh, the truth. It's kind of a uh, 1984-ish, don't you think? Right. And, and I guess that that is that that's one of the core questions, it seems to me. Right. If if the if the work that you do as a documentary uh, producer and if the work that journalists do who cover uh, politicians on a day to day basis are in some way about the pursuit of the truth, uh, at least as the writer, the journalist sees it. Uh, that's the way we certainly think about our scholarship too. all of us. Uh, what role is there? What role should the journalist, the documentary maker, uh, take? Well, how do you see your role in this context, Paul? Well, I don't really see myself as a journalist, Jeremy. It's kind of like, you know, we can have long discussions about what's objective and what's subjective. I mean, of course, almost everything is subjective to a certain extent because you're surrounded by a world of, um, of things happening and you're always going to make choices as to what you cover. And what you cover is going to sometimes, you know, or, you know, will color the the truth that you're telling you know as a filmmaker i'm not really interested in being ideological or sort of um just uh you know interpreting the world according to my own political you know you know tendencies one way or the other you know but uh, to 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 a large extent i'm also evaluating the facts around me in terms of my own worldview you know i'm not a reader of the colombian journalism review and i haven't gone to journalism school so I can't speak for, for actual, you know, journalists. Um, I think that most journalists I know, you know, strive to try to figure out a situation and tell it as honestly as they can, uh, as opposed to making up facts or, you know, ignoring facts. Um, you know, but you live in a time when, you know, people are, are, are uh, you know, very nakedly saying, you know, we have our facts and you have your facts. And when you have a situation like that, there are no facts. Um, and we can rail against misinformation, but when there's large parts of the population that, um, um, you know, essentially interpret things because they heard things on, uh, on their news outlet or their blog, you know, this is part of the problem with Queen on uh, conspiracy theories. I mean, you know, Alex Jones, our own Alex Jones in Austin, has a gigantic audience, you know, talking about all kinds of horrific you know, misstatements about uh, things that happen to us. So I don't know what you do. It's, you know, do you ban social media? You know, are we damned to a, a future without facts where there is no objective journalism? You know, it's, uh, I, I think it's fairly bleak. You know, we can, we can look at the election and go, well, maybe things will get better if uh, there's a change in the presidency. Um, but I, 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 I'm, I'm not convinced of that. Uh, th- that's the cynicism I expected from you, Paul. <laughs> um, wouldn't you say, though, that uh, this is not new, that uh, these concerns were certainly raised with the development of radio when you had individuals like Father Coughlin and others, and then with television, and you've you know, you've done the documentary on George Wallace and someone who, who manipulated television in, the, in this way? Um, to some extent, is this kind of the learning process with new technology as we, as we develop a regulatory scheme and we also learn as journalists, scholars, filmmakers to better use the medium to reach a wider audience with more fact-based analysis? Isn't, is there a natural evolution to this, you think? Well, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, Father Coughlin, you know, in, in the 1930s, sort of hysterical, um, 
uh, you know, voices on the far right obviously had had a lot of followers, but they were kind of swamped, you know, by your mainstream politicians. I mean, we had far less choices back then. Um, you know, and sure, you know, Joe McCarthy and McCarthyism in the 1950s. But um, I, I don't think we've ever been in a situation like we have today where everybody can literally make their own news 24 hours a day. You know, I mean, you know, people came on the radio, but I, I don't think it was every day all the time, you know, back in the 30s. Now, you know, I can get out of bed, have a cup of coffee, you know, turn on to my favorite blog, you know, and listen to, um, you know, all kinds of uh, things that you and I might think were crazy. Um, you know, and, you know, even... Um, you know, even on the nightly nightly news on cable, if you uh, if you flip from CNN to uh, MSNBC to especially Fox, Fox is kind of like an alternative reality, you know, in their opinion shows. And if you watch that all the time, you know, I don't know what you you come up with in terms of uh, what you believe. There was a, uh, I'll give you two examples. I was watching uh, um, coverage of a Trump rally, I think, over in Northeast Pennsylvania, and they were going up and down asking people about um, what they thought was most important. And I can't remember the issue, but, you know, to the person, they were essentially saying the same thing about something that I knew wasn't true. Um, and, you know, it's not as if the journalist was challenging them. It was kind of like this, they had picked this up by listening to their own news sources. You know, years ago, um, 2008, in the Obama-McCain race, you know, I was one of the producers on Frontline's program, The Choice. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, every four years, um, you know, big main two-hour program about the presidential election, you know, which is essentially wrapping around the uh, Democratic and Republican presidential nominee's story. You know, and so, you know, much of our, you know, debate over months and months and months was to, um, to make sure that we were not... Uh, you know, prejudicing, biasing the, the reporting uh, with Obama and McCain. I thought we did a really wonderful job. Um, you know, it was, it was really skillfully done, uh, starting out with uh, Obama and McCain at the 2004 conventions with Obama's speech and McCain making up to, uh, uh, to George W. Bush and sort of like kicking off uh, the race in a really, you know, the story of the race in an interesting way. And uh, Fox had their own, you know, two hour special dealing with the presidential race. And I was really kind of curious how they covered it. And I can't remember who the main reporter was, but I turned it on. And I'm watching it and literally an hour out of two hours dealt with um, the fact that there were two Indonesian students who might have known Obama in college. And um, so they went back to Indonesia to find out they were terrorists. And I'm watching this going, this is crazy. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is your man. It's crazy. You know, and it's kind of like, you know, and I'm, I'm going, God, is the journalist that's doing this ashamed of themselves? You know, they didn't find anything, but it's kind of like, this is what you spend your time on in terms of describing the race. Now, you know, I, you know, like, again, last night I turned on, you know, uh, Fox news and like what they're covering is kind of like, huh? Um, you know, and it's, you know, right now it's, you know, if it's not Hunter Biden, you know, and money coming from Russian oligarchs, you know, it's something, you know, you know, or the, that you know, the Iranians want to elect Joe Biden, you know, by sending threatening emails to Democratic uh, voters in whatever it is, Georgia and Florida. It's, it's from a different kind of reality, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, if I listen to that all the time, 
You know, it's funny. I remember in 2012, I was driving around um, East Texas and I was listening. And I don't want to make this as a total slam of Fox News, uh, but it's close. And I was listening to right wing uh, uh, talk radio. I think, you know, back when Rush Limbaugh was still big. And that's the only radio talk radio I could get in, in East Texas. And I was listening to it for a day, driving around, going, if I listen to this every day, I have a very different you know, view of the world. So if you, you know, are a believer of, you know, somewhat non-biased, you know, uh, political points of view. And quite frankly, you know, you know, for those of us that go, I read the New York Times, I'm non-biased. New York Times has a political slant um, yeah, to a certain extent. Um, but, you know, um, we live in a very, very divided world. You know, and I don't think this is a cynical point of view, Jeremy. I don't know what's going to happen after this election. Okay, let's say, you know, it's clear, you know, it's a... Uh, clear decision. Let's say the president uh, loses uh, by a large margin. I don't think the world changes overnight. It's not as if all of a sudden, you know, it's a kumbaya. We're all going to listen to NBC, NBC, uh, CBS and ABC again and um, and read newspapers. I mean, what's a newspaper? You know, little by little, you know, newspapers are disappearing at a fairly fast pace. You know, and quite frankly, the majority of Americans are not going to be reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times and the Washington Post anytime soon, even if they're not, as the president says, the failing New York Times. So I, I and we're not going to regulate, you know, for um, for uh, accuracy, social media, you know, anytime in our lifetime. So is it a new medium? Yes. Is it a controllable medium? You tell me. Yeah. What about coverage of the debates? We we've I think it was very interesting to me that to see the overwhelmingly negative reaction to the first debate, and it seemed to me that that actually had real effects on the second debate uh, that we saw just just the other week. Um, well, it had a, you know had an impact on the commission, um, you know, having the mute button. Um, you know, I don't think you needed any analysis to uh, to have a visceral response to the first debate. It was, you know, it was pretty insane. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm not sure, what the, you know, what, what the question is over there. I mean, it's, you know, it's not as if like all of a sudden all the news outlets were demanding changes. I mean, because they don't have any power on that. Um, you know, the one thing that you've got to uh, uh, remember is that, uh, you know, news analysis of these kinds of things maybe doesn't have the kind of impact you might think. I mean, you know, pretty much all the analysis after the uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, Donald Trump debates was that she cleaned, cleaned up, that she won all those debates. And I remember watching the third debate and uh, and soon to be President Trump saying he wasn't sure if he would accept the, uh, the results of the election. And I turned to a friend of mine and said, well, I guess that's it. Uh, and it wasn't it. So, uh, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Um, so, you know, one person thinking that uh, the president is uh, over the edge may think this is a strong man and this is what I want. So did it affect the commission? Sure. Um, and having the mute button was interesting. Um, uh, but I'm not sure it was news coverage that did that so much as it was just uh, uh, the commission's um, 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 frustration over a debate that wasn't much of a debate. So, so Paul, I think a, a lot of what you're saying uh, is very powerful, and and whether new or not in our history, there's no doubt that uh, we have a, a a crisis of truth telling in our society. Right. Not that politics has ever been completely truthful. Where do we go from here? I mean, one of the points of our podcast is to use this historical analysis and contemporary analysis to. Um, 
think about ways of moving forward and uh, what, what can we do? What, what do we want in particular our young listeners who care deeply, deeply about uh, the truth and about democracy? What, what can we take from this going forward? What should we do? Yeah, I don't know what we can do, Jeremy. It's kind of like it's, um, I think part of the the problem of sort of like the misinformation universe that we live in is that it's been um, reinforced by, from the, from the White House, you know, and when you have somebody with that kind of a bully pulpit, uh, they have an incredible influence on, on these sorts of things in our country. So that if you have a president who doesn't lie all the time, if you have a president who, um, spends much of their time trying to bring us together. Um, you know, whether you liked or didn't like Barack Obama or liked or didn't like George W. Bush, uh, both those presidents in their own way spoke to the entire country. And they never talked about, you know, the way the president does about red, red, uh, blue cities and red, red states. Um, and, um, you know, for political analysts, they're sort of sitting in their chairs going, why didn't he ever reach out to um, you know, a wider audience during his presidency? So I think the first step is, you know, if you do have a change in the White House, having somebody there who at least goes out of their way to try to speak to the entire country and change the tone tone of, uh, of political dialogue. Um, you know, because I think the president has an, uh, an incredible influence on just the way these things are talked about. You know, if you have a president that's you know, always trying to be able to speak to the entire country. I think it makes it a little bit more difficult for the crazier um, uh, social media outlets outlets to um, to make up stuff. Now, can they make up stuff? Of course they can. During, during the Obama administration, you know, some of the things that were out there were truly horrifying, you know, and just, just horrible. Uh, but, um, you know, it didn't impact uh, the Obama presidency and it didn't impact his popularity. Um you know, so I think that's your first step. You've got to change the dialogue from the top and you have to have a commitment to the people who are the leaders of the country to, uh, you know, to trying to you know, unify the country in some way that, um, you know, not everything, you know, is a blood, uh, blood thirsty battle, you know, on, on policy, you know, or on, uh, of ways of thinking. If you begin to think of your opponents as not human and, uh, and not worthy of uh, uh, consideration as other people, uh, then then you go down a sinkhole that um, that other countries have gone down uh, and that you can't get out of. You know, that leads to the end of democracy. Um, so you know, that's uh, I, I you know I hope for better leadership. You know, in terms of what we can do, Jeremy, you tell me. I don't really know what kind of power we have as individuals. Well, it does seem to me, building on your point, Paul, that uh, looking across the history of American uh, elections, mm-hmm. uh, the winners matter, right? It matters who wins. Yeah. And when you when you have figures uh, like a Franklin Roosevelt who are elected in a time that, that has many similarities to our current moment uh, in the early 1930s, um, and you have a figure who, who himself, of course, has an agenda – but speaks to the whole public and encourages a fact-based dialogue right. that that can have a, a very powerful effect. I agree. Uh, and, and I mean that not just at the national level, also at the state and uh, the local level. So it would seem to me that the historical lesson would be that electing leaders who, who, who take facts seriously and speak to a broader audience, as you said so well, that that, that might be part of, of the solution to this moment. 
Sure. You know, you know, part of your problem with leadership is that uh, there are, in fact, very few uh, examples of profiles and courage. <laughs> you know, just that's just the way it is. I remember uh, years ago speaking to the former, um, I might have been the speaker of the Minnesota House, you know, a fairly conservative Republican. <laughs> and it's in our film Vote for Me where he goes, uh, you know, uh, leaders lead. That's a crock of whatever. You know, uh, you know, politicians are followers, you know, and they follow whatever is popular or they follow whatever is going to get them reelected. And so that makes it even doubly important that whoever is the leader of the country is, is a uniter, not a divider. Um, you know, you're beginning to have, you know, politicians, you know, our former uh, colleague, uh, Jeremy Ben Sass, the senator from uh, from Nebraska. You know, it's uh, you know, it's interesting to hear him say what he actually feels about President Trump. Of course, he uh, he let that telephone call be heard after he was passed the Republican primary in Nebraska, where he was unbeatable as a, as a Republican. So, is that a profile in courage, or is that a profile in uh, in expediency uh, to be on the right side if there actually is a, a large victory against uh, uh, by Joe Biden on election day? You know, I think it all comes from the top, and you sort of go from there. Um, that the only way to be able to deal with this horrible division in the country, you know, and this incredible dysfunction in Congress to be able to deal with any of our problems, you know, is to have somebody who actually, you know, is dedicated to try to be able to put the pieces back together again. And, you know, and you're right. And Franklin Roosevelt in the 30s is an example of somebody in a situation where the country was on the brink of seeming to fall apart, was able to draw people back together again. Now, remember, there are plenty of Republicans who hated Roosevelt. Of course, um, of course. You know, and um, that's what you count on, you know. Um, right. You know, with McCarthyism, you know, Eisenhower, you know, you know, in different ways was able to get rid of him finally. Um, you know, but, you know, we're, we're at a very weird point in time right now. And I think it's, um, quite frankly, pretty scary. So... I, I agree. But do you do you think, Paul, and we're not necessarily talking about Joe Biden when we talk right. about this, uh, but do, do you think the capacity exists for um, even a small group of leaders uh, elected to various offices to to, in essence, uh, bring us back to this moment uh, when facts are cool and speaking to the full the full public in a united way um, actually can can have a, a big effect upon the national narratives that we that we tell and, and produce. I just don't know. I mean, you can only you know, you can only hope. I mean, do you think that Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell after the election are going to uh, go into a room and embrace and decide to do the best for the country? <laughs> you know, it's I think this has got to come from the top. You know, is Joe Biden, you know, if he becomes president of the United States, capable of doing that? Uh, you got to hope so. Um, I know the president is not capable of doing that. Um, so, you know, just, you know, pray for the best. <laughs> Zachary, wh- what do you think? Do you think uh, as as a, a young person who cares deeply about politics and cares deeply about facts, uh do you think that that there's a capacity, and do you see leaders emerging, even younger leaders, and 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 uh, let's say you know lower level jobs and offices? Do you see them uh, bringing people together and returning us to a more fact based dialogue? I'm not sure if if I can say that because um, I don't think it would be true, but I, I do think that my generation is 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 very quickly uh, realizing that everything we see on the internet is not true, um, and. 
I, I think that part of the problem is that my generation, there's like a dichotomy. You're either in completely trusting of, of what you read on the internet and what you see or completely untrusting. I've actually found that a lot of my peers are very skeptical. That's probably a good thing of the facts around them. So I think actually my generation, uh, as we come into institutions of power, will be uh, be more attentive to facts and 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 more attentive to the misinformation that surrounds us every day. Well, and I guess that's the that's the hope that uh, an awareness uh, of these issues, an awareness of the biases and the the lying, and uh, an effort an educated effort by more and more listeners and watchers to actually seek out information that is presented uh, in a more fact-based way and to understand sources better. Maybe that's the learning process we're going through. Uh, It does strike me that new media offers, as Paul says, all kinds of opportunities for people to make their own news, but it also offers all kinds of opportunities for consumers to find many different sources and not rely on one source alone and use a critical evaluation of sources to understand a closer approximation of the truth. That's one of the points of our podcast, that democracy does require the effort, the effort to reach the truth or as close as we can come. Paul, uh, your work has done so much to enlighten us, and I know you're doing a new documentary now uh, on this election. In, in, in closing, can you just tell us a little bit about your current project? Well, it's it's not just about this election. We, uh, you know, at the end of our careers, uh, went back and we, uh, we organized all 40 years of our raw footage from making films since the late 1970s about politics uh, to do a project that we call Politico is trying to figure out what one actually learns filming politics on the kind of behind the scenes levels that we do. Part of it is to, uh, to throw forward to the 2020 elections and uh, as much as we possibly can not uh, concentrate on Donald Trump. Yeah. So we're actually over in uh, Fort Bend County, which has become uh, as transitioned from Tom DeLay's base to the most one of the most diverse, uh, if not the most diverse, suburban county in the United States, and huge early turnout. I think right, huge uh, early turnout, gigantic turnout. And um, you know, it's uh, back in the early 1990s we we covered extensively the suburbs of the future and the suburbs of the future. That was Cobb County, north of Atlanta. You know, uh, exploding white flight population, very conservative. You know, we followed Newt Gingrich around, Johnny Isaacson, Isaac, Isaac, Johnny Isaacson, who eventually became a senator, who was then a real estate agent. And that was the, that was the suburbs of the future. Well, the suburbs of the future have changed 25 years later. And it's, uh, you know, it's now, uh, you know, a quarter white, a quarter African-American, a quarter uh, uh, Mexican-American, and a quarter Asian-American. And it's uh, really diverse. And by the way, there's a lot more restaurant choices there. <laughs> that explains your behavior to me, Paul. <laughs> As always, Paul, thank you for joining us. We, we will be excited to see your new work. And uh, most of all, I think you've shared with us uh, a, a, a call to arms to really address what, it, what is a, a crisis of, of truth-telling uh, in our society today and one that only we as citizens uh, have to do the hard work to address. Zachary, thank you for your uh, inspiring and also uh, warning-filled poem. And most of all, thank you to our listeners for joining us uh, on this episode of This Is Democracy. Please make sure that you vote. Thank you.
This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.